Well, as Kevin said, my name is Don, and I have the privilege this morning of uh, taking us to the last sermon in this series on the book of James, as you as you see behind you. Now, if you are a regular here, you're used to us preachers um, using a headset mic, and I just want to let you know, I've, I've had this, like, annoying cough the last few days. Anyone join me in my pain? Annoying coughs? Okay. And so I apologize if I have to cough, but it'll be better if I can move the mic away than you having to hear it through a headset mic. So I'm hopefully doing this for you, but just, just a heads up. All right. We are ending the book of James today, and I hope that it's been a, a good ride for you through an amazing little book. It's been a hard word sometimes. The sermons that you have to preach through James are not like easy stuff. Often it's really tough stuff, and we've dealt with some, some pretty deep issues. And today I'm excited because James, as he ends what he's going to teach us, is basically going to take us in a direction of prayer. So the message today is going to be about big faith prayer, and I hope that this will be encouraging for all of us. Now, just before I go there, though, a little bit of context. So last week, um, Pastor Bruce preached on the section just before in chapter 5 that picked up a reoccurring theme in James, and that reoccurring theme is how do we as followers of Jesus be patient and trusting in the midst of suffering? And Bruce did an awesome job of of bringing that teaching to us. So for review, I wanted you to see um, his final slide, which was a theology of suffering. And I thought this was really, really helpful, and I kind of meditated on it all week. He talked about we all experience suffering. It's not about comparing up or down. It's just the reality of life on planet Earth. He talked about embracing the tension of God's sovereignty versus our free will, and that's a tough tension. He talked about how God uses suffering to develop our character and bigger faith. And that's just a real common theme all through James. Um, He suggested that pursuing the why doesn't usually help. And that's a tough one. We'll talk more about that later. But, uh, and then the last one, we can all be better friends to those who suffer. And that's a good one too. And I'm going to return to that point later in the message as well. So this message impacted me a lot. And I did a lot of thinking about it throughout the week. And um, one, of the, one of the things that came to me was this line that I've got on the bottom there. And basically the challenge inside of me was, do I really believe in a literal heaven? Do I really believe in the afterlife? Do I really believe Jesus when he said that I'm going to prepare a place for you? That there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth? And the reason I was questioning myself on this is that the people here in James they were like absolutely excited and stoked all the time for that to happen because of how much suffering and how much persecution they lived under. So Jesus coming or thinking about the afterlife was incredible good news to them. But I found myself realizing that in our nice little cushy Western lives, I kind of like my life. There's a lot of things I want to do yet in my life. So I was thinking about that. Now I've got a confession to make here and, uh, this will help you all to realize that I'm as shallow as you probably think I am. But a couple years ago, I reached the terrible age of 50. I know, it was terrible. And upon reaching the age of 50, I had this realization of, you know what, I've already lived more life than I'm now going to live later. And it really hit me. And, and, you know, so as I was feeling sorry for myself, and I'm really good at that, feeling sorry for myself. And so what I started to do 
was to create a bucket list. Oh, there it is. Now, if you're new to our country or younger, I'll just explain. Um, uh, like a saying in the English language, sort of a light saying about death, is we say, someone kicked the bucket. I know, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird saying. So because of that idea of kicking the bucket, um, so then th there's been popularized this idea of you make a bucket list, which is all the things you want to do before you die. And so there's, there was a movie a number of years ago that made this famous, but lots of people have a bucket list. So in my feeling sorry for myself, I was filling up the bucket list because I was thinking, poor me, I'm already 50, and like most of the things I've wanted to do in life, all the great countries I want to travel to, and all these other things, like I want to do all those, and maybe I'm going to run out of time. And then after reflecting on this sermon this week, or Bruce's last week, and then I was talking to someone that really challenged me, and, and they don't even know the, how they said it, but it, just like the Holy Spirit just rebuked me. And basically it was this idea, do I really believe that the afterlife in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus is going to be awesome and amazing? Do I really believe that that's God's plan and that the adventure and the excitement and the amazingness of what eternal life could be with God in the new heaven and the new earth, do I really believe that or not? Or am I just so in love with my own life, so in love with my bucket list? And so I had to lay that down this week and say, Lord, forgive me. If I'm going to develop a good theology of suffering, I need to have that be part of what I'm thinking about. And that, yeah, you know what? I'm all for living life to the full. Life is a gift and it's good. I'm not saying bucket lists are bad. I'm just saying as followers of Jesus, do we have that greater, that deeper perspective? So all of that to say, that was my context from last week and my bucket list. And now today we're going to go to prayer in James chapter 5 down at verse 13. And basically how James is going to wrap up his book is he's going to say to us, hey, in all situations, in the good and the bad and the ugly of life, the suffering and the realities of being human on planet Earth, here's the hope, here's the good news. As followers of Jesus, we pray. That's what we're called to. That's one of the... So, anyway, let's just read James chapter 5, 13 to 14. It says, Are any among you suffering or in trouble? They should pray. Are any cheerful or happy? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. So what James is trying to tell us here is that in the normal flow of being community, of being Jesus followers, this is how we live. No matter what's going on in life, again, good, bad, or ugly, we pray and we pray in community. And that this is just the normal way you do church. So he's been talking in, in context about suffering. He's saying, hey, yes, when you go through that, pray. And don't just pray for yourself, but get people around you praying with you. Pray in community. That's so important. And he says, hey, when you're cheerful, when you're happy. We need to understand, though, that in the context of James, this isn't talking about that we're just all lighthearted and happy because the circumstances in our life are really awesome right now. No, this is the supernatural joy this inner joy that is a work of the Holy Spirit, and that in the midst of the suffering and the things we go through in life, that God can supernaturally give us joy. That, that's, the, that's the kind of joy he's talking about. You see, James doesn't, lead us, or doesn't instruct us to pray to God to take away our circumstances. He instructs us to pray for endurance and that we learn in the midst of them. That's basically what James has been saying through the whole book. 
So suffering or cheerful, prayer. Praising God together. Our worship songs that we sing, many of them are prayers. And it's, it's a beautiful way to express ourselves to God. But then he says the sick. And, you know, before I kind of dive into some of the challenges with this, I just want you to first see just the normalness. This is just the normalness of church. This is what you do. If someone's sick, you get the elders or the leaders of the church together, they anoint you, and they pray with oil. It was really no big deal to them. Now, historically, this is why. So James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians, and in their Jewish tradition, it was very common that if you were sick, yes, you went to the doctor, but before you went to the doctor, you went to the rabbi, and the rabbi would anoint you with oil and pray for you. So it was, it was already a part of their culture. So James is just basically saying, let's keep doing this, but now, through the power of Jesus, this takes on a whole new level, but he's calling them to. So again, they weren't, this wasn't anything out of the ordinary for them. Now, I, uh, I recently have been listening to this funny little podcast called uh, Five Minutes of Church History. And being such a history geek, I love it. And, and this, the guy who does it just gives you little glimpses into our story as the Christian church. And anyway, but here's something that I learned this last week about this whole idea of oil and praying for the sick. So in the very, very early days of Christianity, like just after the book of Acts in that era, um, the, the leaders got together to try to clarify the different sacraments of the church. Now, sacraments are things like communion, baptism, and, but they also had a sacrament that was called um, the sacrament of unction. Now, that sounds like a weird word to us, but basically it's an anglicized word that combines prayer and oil. So it's kind of like saying oil prayer, but anglicized, and so it was called the sacrament of unction. And so for hundreds of years in the early church, that was just the common practice, that you, that you practiced this sacrament and you prayed and anointed people with oil and prayed for them for healing. Okay, but this is really interesting. In the year 852, so we've had about 500 plus years of Christianity now, but in the year 852, the church decided to change this, and they changed the sacrament of unction to the sacrament of extreme unction, and basically what that meant was they changed healing prayer into prayer to prepare people for death, or basically what you might have heard of as last rites. That's when that started. So I don't know what you think when you hear that. I know my first reaction was, oh, that terrible, faithless, ancient church. How could they cover up their lack of faith by changing the rules and not praying for healing anymore? And then as I was, you know, feeling oh so self-righteous, then I thought about the church today. And I thought even how I as a pastor often want to, what's the word? dumb it down because we so much fear that we don't see the results we want. Therefore, let's not talk about healing or do that too much because we might hurt or disappoint people and people get messed up and confused. And all of that's true. And yet the scripture is pretty clear that we're called to pray for the sick. And it should be a normal part of a normal part of church, a normal part of what we do in community. So I was convicted about that too, but just wanted you to know a little bit about that history with, with the anointing of oil. So, when we anoint people with oil and pray for healing, what about the oil? Is there something mystical or magical or supernatural about the oil? Some would think that. 
There are those who see the oil as simply being medicinal. And then there's probably the, the most common teaching, which is that the oil is symbolic. So that, that's been part of the, the trying to understand this. Now, it's interesting to me that other than this passage in James, there's only two other times in the New Testament that anointing with oil is mentioned. Now, the first one is when Jesus tells one of his famous stories. They were called parables. And one of his most famous parables is called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, the Good Samaritan rescues someone who's been beaten up. And while bandaging up the person's wounds, the scripture says that they poured oil on the wounds. And so that's one example. And that's why there are some who see the connection of the oil to a for medicinal reasons. It was very common in the ancient world for oil to be seen as an agent of healing in, in the many ways they would use it. So that was, that was a common understanding. Um, the, the second time is in Mark chapter 6, 13. And it's just a short verse where basically Jesus sends out his disciples and they go out and they pray and anoint um, the, with oil the sick. And it just says that they did it. And, and that, so that's it. That's, <clears throat> that's all of the scripture we have on anointing with oil. It's important to understand that the church did a lot of praying in many ways and even praying over the sick, but not always with oil. There was sort of something special about that. And yet, as I said earlier, there's nothing magical or mystical or supernatural about the oil. It's symbolic. It's really for our faith to make the situation more meaningful, more powerful, and and, yeah, it just increases our faith as we, as we add some of the, that meaning to it. So I, I think that's, that's where it comes from. So let's go on to verse 15 and 16 now. So 15 says, The prayer of faith will save, or other translations say, make well or heal the sick. And the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So what about this prayer of faith? Here's a question for you. Whose faith are we talking about here? In context, it's actually not the faith of the person who wants the prayer for healing. In context here, the faith is the faith of the elders or the people that are praying for them. So I think it's important to, to make that connection as to, because, you know, there's something that we have to consider with this prayer of faith. Now, we can't deny that there's many passages where Jesus connects faith into our walk with God, faith into healing. There's definitely that connection. But I think we have to be really careful that we, that we don't make this automatic connection that if someone asks for prayer for healing, that if it doesn't happen, that somehow it's their fault. They didn't have enough faith, or the prayers didn't have enough faith. I think we have to be really, really careful with that, and I would suggest to you that at times in the church, it's been a form of spiritual abuse. And I know some of you have gone through that. Just a, just a couple stories from my life. I'm sure a lot of you could tell stories too, but a very good friend of mine, um, a number of years ago, was um, diagnosed with colitis. And he went through um, 
you know, all the typical things that someone with that diagnosis would do. All of the natural healing ways as well as medical healing ways tried all the kinds of different things. And because he was a man of faith, he also went to people who prayed for healing. And so he gathered a group of people who were willing to pray for him because they, they pray for healing. And they anointed him. They prayed for him. I'm not sure all what happened. But basically, after the prayer time, when he wasn't supernaturally healed, they basically said to him, well, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. And I was just so saddened and so angry all at the same time when I heard that. Because he was broken and devastated from that. And yet, I believe, was given some really poor theology. So I think we have to be really careful of that. I want to say to you, too, that I understand personally what it's like to be the desperate parent who wants to see your child be healed. So our, our second daughter was born, born with some irregularities that, were, that caused her to almost die a couple times as an infant. And uh, we, were, we were desperate young parents. And so we did everything. Like we had the loving people here at Forest Grove praying for us. We had all our pastors coming and praying. I mean, people were wonderful and prayed all over for healing. In fact, we even went to the faith healer. Any been to a faith healer? Like we, we went, yep, like the guy standing in front, like, you know, the whole place is abuzz with all the crazy charismatic stuff. It's like, you know, like we did that too. And you know what? I, I know I'm sounding a little bit mocking here, but you know what? If people are praying for healing, I go bring it on. It's awesome. It's good. It's biblical. But I just want you to say I know that desperation. And we, and we did. We tried everything. And she was never healed physically in the way we would have desired. We believe God healed in different ways. And we trust God in different ways in the whole area of healing. But I just want to say I know what it's like to be there. And there's, and there's certainly no easy answers. But I think we have to be really careful about how we understand the prayer of faith. Now, what about the connection up here with sin and healing? What do we do with that? Now, again, there's no doubt that there is connections in Scripture at times between sin and healing. Another thing that that Pastor Bruce told us last week was that it was very common in the ancient world and in Jewish culture that if someone was, was sick or someone was having troubles or problems, it was because of sin. There was always a direct correlation. If someone is sick, if someone's having troubles in their life, it's because they've sinned. And that was just what they thought. Now, Jesus actually messed up this whole way of thinking. So I just want you to see what he said in John 9, 1 3. As he, Jesus, walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works or glory might be revealed in him. So Jesus really messed up their theology that they were so certain about. And he said, be very careful how you connect sin to people's illnesses. And again, I sadly would say that I've seen some spiritual abuse happen in this area too. So, what about the connection, though? Now, here's another problem. As soon as we hear the S-word, not sex, sin, as soon as we hear the S-word, we right away just think of the typical external sin things. And then we just can't get our brains past that. I think the sin we're talking about here is internal stuff that creates great stress. So, hanging on to bitterness, hanging on to fear, 
hanging on to a fence, hanging on to just the brokenness of the experiences we go through in life. And I think that when we're hanging on to all of that, it just builds stress in us. Now, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that there's been countless medical studies done connecting stress to sickness. And again, it's not just a direct correlation, but I think there's lots of evidence that says there is a correlation. So um, I wanna, want you to see a verse. So um, another hero of the Bible, a man named David, who wrote a lot of prayers. This is how he describes his experience. Well, well I kept silence, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So this author in their prayer is basically describing what happens when you hold on to that in your life. And just how it like crushes the bones, crushes your spirit. And I think in this context, there can be a connection to our health and that kind of sin in our life. And I think that's why James is saying here, therefore, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. So what he's saying is, is that in community, in trusted Christian community, um, pour out your honesty, pour out your brokenness. You know, it's not about getting together in a group and everyone listing off their sin list. It's more about vulner- like being vulnerable. Like being in a small group of people that you trust, that you know love you, and that you can be vulnerable together about where you're struggling, where you're holding on to pain. Because we need to let go of that. And I think James is saying that when we, yeah, when we confess our sins one to another, when we can let some of that stress and all of those things go and trust it to those that love us and pray for us, that that can be healing. And that can even lead to physical healing at times. You know, I don't know if anyone here struggles with back issues. My heart goes out to you if you do. I've been someone very fortunate that um, this, that hasn't been an issue for me, except one time. And this was a few years ago in my life when I was, I was going through a time in my life where I was holding a lot in. I was holding in fear. I was holding in anger. I was holding in disappointment. I was holding in jealousy. I was holding in a lot of things and that I just stuffed and just held inside. And then just out of nowhere, I didn't do anything. I didn't like lift anything or anything like that. All of a sudden, my back's out, and I'm flat on my back. And yeah, I had to go through the medical community to, for my back to be fixed. And, but you know, the biggest thing for me was dealing with all of that and getting to a healthier place emotionally in my life. And when I got to a healthier place emotionally and physically, I've never had that happen again since. So again, that's just my story, but I think we know that there can be connections, and yet there can be healing when we can release stuff in safe and trusted community. And I think that's what James is talking about here. Now, let's go on to the next verses now. James 5, 16. So this, this is half of verse 15, where it says, The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. 
Now, James continues to use examples from the ancient Old Testament scriptures of famous people that he uses to illustrate or give examples of what he's teaching. So Elijah is an interesting character, and we're not going to get into Elijah's story today because it's a long, long story. And if you've never read it before, or if you haven't read it in a while, I encourage you to go back there and read this. Here's what's so amazing about Elijah's story, though. There were, there were times when Elijah prayed with incredible faith and boldness, and then there were times when Elijah was literally depressed, hopeless, and unbelieving God. Like he went through the whole gamut of that. So that's why I love this illustration, because what James is saying, Elijah wasn't a superstar follower of God. He was just a human, just like us. And yet, because he followed God, because God made him righteous, his prayers were powerful and effective. So what do you think of that line? The prayers, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So if I asked you, put up your hand today if you're righteous, I'm sure most of you wouldn't, mostly because you think it would be proud and arrogant to say that. But I also would suggest that most of you have misunderstand what righteous means. Righteous doesn't mean perfect, arrived, super spiritual, that you're some kind of like super saint. No. Righteous actually is a way more about what Jesus does than what you do. Jesus declares you righteous because he forgives, because he heals, because he fills you with his presence. He makes you righteous. Yes, we participate. Yes, we accept that. But please don't fall for the lie that you're not righteous and that somehow, because you're not a super Christian or one of those kind of people, that this doesn't apply to you. If you're a follower of Jesus and it's your desire to follow him, even in the midst of all your imperfections and struggles, the scripture says your prayers are powerful and effective, just like Elijah. I had one, one quote from a commentator I read this week. He said, the power possessed by prayer is not limited to super saints. The righteous person simply designates one who is wholeheartedly committed to God and sincerely seeking to do his will. So let me say, righteous ones, pray. Pray. Remember that the the scripture we were reading said that it was the Lord who raised up the sick. It wasn't the faith prayer of the elders that healed. It was God. It was God who raises us up. God is the healer. He's the one that we're directing our faith to and in. So what are we called to do as prayers, as righteous prayers, all of you, is we're called a humility. Another big theme in James, a humility that's all about dependence, repentance, being right before God, walking there, and then obedience. Just do it. Pray. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to have some people at, uh, at each table in the side, and you'll see on there there's anointing oil. If we're going to teach the scriptures, we've got to obey them. So I've asked some of our staff and some of our elders on council if they would be willing to anoint you with oil and pray for you. And you know what? They're not superstar Christians. They are just faithful. They love you, and they are obedient. They want to be obedient to God's word, and God is the healer but they would love to pray for you. So just let you know that that's going to come in a few minutes. Now just to wrap up, there's two more verses 
to this scripture that seem to be a little bit of a left turn, but they're incredibly important and they connect to prayer. So here they are, James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What I want you to notice right away about that text is where it says, if anyone among you. This is talking about people within our community that we love and that we've been in relationship with who have wandered away. I know that many of you in this room can relate to people in your life that you'd love dearly, that are wanderers, and your heart breaks for them. I loved how these verses were said in the message, and that's my final slide. It says, my dear friends, if you know people who have wandered off from God's truth, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back, and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from God. It's very personal for me. I know it's very personal for a lot of you. But this just so convicted me. Don't give up on them. I want you to hear a couple things. One, I want you to hear wandering does not mean leaving. It may seem like leaving, but I take great hope and faith in that I don't know how long the wandering may be for the people you're thinking of. It's often years, tons of pain, but it's still wandering. And I would say take great faith in that and don't give up. At all that line, don't write them off. So a little while ago, I was meeting with a young adult person that I was really close to. And uh, this person was one of these on fire for Jesus people. Missions trips, that, that person, totally totally loving Jesus and and loving life and loving their Christian community. And then they went through a time where they wandered, and um, now they would self-identify as an atheist and have nothing to do with the church or any of their previous Christian friends. And of course, that really broke my heart. But here's what saddened me even more. Then they said to me, they said, you know, Don, when I was going through my initial phase of struggling and doubting, my Christian friend stopped calling. And that made me really sad. And I'm not saying this to put guilt on any of you. I'm pointing all the fingers back at me. How many times have I given up? Have I been frustrated? I, I know there's two sides to the story. I'm not saying this person is perfect and they were wronged. No. But what I am saying is, could the Holy Spirit be convicting us that we're not going after the wanderers, that we're giving up on them? So I encourage you today, keep praying, keep hoping, and if the Holy Spirit leads you to reach out, remember, he's the healer. We're not the healer. He's the convictor. We don't convict. So I encourage you in that way.